You are listening to Hospitality Talks, a podcast about all things hospitality through discussions with industry leaders around the globe. Here are your hosts, Abid Butt and Sam Eric Rutman. Hello and welcome to Hospitality Talks. Uh, today's session will focus on global tourism recovery. Tourism, one of the most dynamic and most job-intensive sectors of our times, has greatly suffered from the pandemic and has demonstrated sectors' structural deficiencies. We've also learned some of the areas that need immediate attention in order to enhance the sector's resiliency. These steps uh, need to address demand evolution, talent management, innovation and sustainability, and are critical for tourism to continue being a lever for economic growth. Glad to be with you on Hospitality Talks. I'm Abed Bass, and I'm here with my co-host, Sam Eric Ratman. Sam. Thank you, Abed, and a warm welcome. We have a great panel and uh, great topics to discuss about. So for all the viewers, just write in your comment and any questions you have, we will address them with a panel. So with, with any further ado, so let's bring the, the, everyone to the screen. Fabulous. So, uh, uh, Sam, today we are joined by Virginia Messina uh, as Senior Vice President of uh, Advocacy for World Tourism and Travel Council. She is responsible for all strategic initiatives as well as engagement with the governments and other industry associations. Virginia has spent the last decade advocating for travel and tourism and developing an alignment with key industry organizations. We also have with us today Aradna Koala, who's the Chief Executive Officer for Aptimine Partners. Aradna is founder of Aptimize Partners, a global private client advisory firm that continues to help government leaders, family offices, high net worth individuals, and as a keen practitioner in the industry, she is well known for her international advocacy on sustainable tourism, climate change, women, and diversity. And last but not least, we have today with us Alex Dichter, who is the senior partner with McKenzie & Company. Uh, as uh, uh, Alex spent some time as a pilot, uh, a commercial pilot, and took his passion for tourism industry uh, uh, and joined McKenzie, uh, based out of London office. She looks after, uh, he looks after travel and aviation practices, working across functions, industries, and geographies. He has helped several organizations drive improvements in operational, financial, and organizational performance. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Welcome to Hospitality Talks. Thank you. So, uh, Sam, we will have Virginia lead us out, uh, if that's okay. So, Virginia, if you don't mind, we're going to get right into it. You guys just had your conference in Cancun. How did it go? That was possibly one of the first gatherings of the industry uh, a global association that gathered in Cancun. How did it go? What were the learnings? Uh, what were the successes? 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me alongside such distinguished panelists. And, and absolutely, as you say, we just um, got back from, from Cancun, where we hosted this first international event. Um, we were able to host six, over 600 um, delegates, obviously, um, within a very safe environment. And I think the principle behind this was really that we wanted to, to walk the talk, right? We wanted to really prove that it can be done. And for, for many months now, um, through through the worst of this crisis over last year, WTTC has been advocating for a combination of measures between testing and health and hygiene protocols that can get us to start moving again, can get us to get travel back on. And that was precisely what we wanted to to prove, and I'm obviously delighted to report that we were able to do that. And so, as as I said, we were able to have this this number of delegates, and of course, um, we were very glad to have Aradna there um, with us, amongst many other WTTC members. And and the way we did this is exactly through that. We had a very clear um, health protocol. Everyone that accessed the venue was tested, and then everyone obviously wore face masks and 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 health um, other health measures throughout. Virginia, you guys had a, a bit of a hybrid version. Of course, there were 600 delegates uh, in person present, but you also uh, had a live cast uh, going on for a global audience. Is that something that you would consider moving forward or was that uh, just for this event? Yeah, so I mean, as you say, I think everyone has been getting used to what this new world has brought us in terms of being in front of screens, which in a way is, is positive because we're able to benefit through content all around the world. Uh, and so so that was what we were able to do with this with this summit. As you said, it was our first hybrid event. So we had a, a virtual platform that over 30,000 people around the world um, watched. So again, it was just able to amplify what we were doing doing all the content that we shared throughout the event. So I think it, in this sense, it has definitely added to, to the value of, of our um, event as such. However, one thing I do want to say, uh, and one thing we learned after this event, is that nothing will replace that human-to-human -human connection. Everyone was so happy to be able to be there in person, finally be able to meet other people, meet our own staff members that we haven't seen for so for so long. And, and actually a lot of business also went on in the sidelines. So it was it was um, very successful. And, and as I say, nothing will replace that that people connection. You're you're absolutely correct. Technology has come a long ways and we can do a lot, a lot, a lot of great things through technologies. Uh, but Unfortunately, that personal contact uh, is critical. It, it's in our DNA to be able to uh, socialize with people, so I don't think that's about to go away. Having said that, uh, uh, what do you see as some of the, the fundamental changes in travel and tourism industries? And I, having, having done things differently for nearly a year and a half, what are those changes might become permanent? So our, our sector has constantly adapted, right? And, and, and innovation is, is part of, of that. So whilst we will obviously see certain changes as a result of this crisis, the reality is that travel will continue to be there. And, and, and we know the pent-up demand is there. We know the sentiment is there. People want to go out and travel. So we don't foresee any major um 
changes. But of course, as, as, as I say, we are adapting. So how are we adapting? Obviously, um, all these new measures that are now in place to avoid um, further um, spread of, of, of coronavirus, so whether it's um, enhanced health and sanitization measures, whether it's physical distancing, whether it's face masks, some of those um, protocols will remain in place for some time. I think um, they are inevitable. And again, they are the way um, to keep us safe. So I, I believe that that's a trend that perhaps we're going to see for some time. But when we, we think a bit about travel, um, I, I think one thing that has definitely been enhanced is, is the use of technology. So for many years, we at WTTC had been working in something we call the, the seamless traveler journey. And this was all about enhancing security through technologies such as biometrics, like how could we make that end-to-end -end journey um, more seamless through the use of this technology. So again, this, is some, this has been something that has been accelerated as a result of this crisis. All these new contactless technologies are going to help us get, get through this crisis. And then uh, in addition to that is all these um, digital passes that are, are now in place and being um, developed in order to, again, get us to get um, moving and traveling, uh, but obviously proving that we are not carrying the virus. So, so that's a, another one that is definitely very relevant. And lastly, it's it's sustainability. And I know we will be um, covering all of these things um, throughout, but I think in terms of sustainability, it, for many years, businesses and, 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 and companies have been thinking about this and, and it has become a core of the way we, we do business. However, we, we have seen a strong trend into how this is more relevant now for consumers as well as for policymakers. So that's something else that will, will remain in place and which is great to see, of course. Uh, Virginia, the, the last time the, the world uh, came to a bit of a halt was the 9-11 uh, era where travel absolutely halted uh, at a, in a minute. All planes were grounded. Nobody was able to travel. And the life changed after that. The security lines became longer. We had to do different things. And it created a lot of confusion. Some of that confusion, honestly, even exists today. You go from one country and you're taking your shoes off, belts off, and the other ones, you can walk straight through. Are there any learnings from 9-11 era that could be applied while we open up our borders during this pandemic? There is, and, and it's very interesting that you bring up that point because that was certainly the crisis that really that was the biggest shock for our sector, right? And as you said, we had to kind of reinvent the way we travel. Now, when we think about this, this was a crisis that was originated in, in one part of the world. Obviously, COVID is a, is a global crisis. And, and we have looked at the economic impact of this and actually... Um, it was the global financial crisis that that hit our sector hardest from an economic perspective. And just to give you an idea, that was a 4% drop in travel and tourism GDP, whereas this um, crisis uh, and th this pandemic has dropped our contribution to the global GDP to more than 49%. So just, that's just to put things into perspective of how devastating this, this impact have, has, uh, I mean, the COVID has been to, to our sector. Now, in terms of the recovery for that, so 
what we what we have seen um, in, in these previous um, cases and, and shocks, effectively, is the importance of international coordination. So, as you well say, back in two thousand and one. Um, I think it took some time and, and there were different processes in place in different countries, which, of course, um, really undermined consumer confidence. I, I think people didn't want to go to travel because of the hassle that it meant for, for a period of time. Whereas um, moving on to the, the, the financial crisis, and of course, these are crises um, that are very different in, in nature. But if you think about what happened at the policy level, and the G20 was created just to get us out of the 2009 financial crisis. And it was that coordination amongst governments that really achieved that V-shaped recovery in 2009. And that's why for many months we have really been advocating for the importance of coordination amongst countries um, to really um, at least be clear in terms of what these processes are, in terms of what these frameworks will be when, when we start um, traveling again and what the protocols and, and measures and, and also in terms of the fact that um, that travel can be can be done safely uh, uh, if we follow all of these rules. Well, Virginia, you you spent a lot of time coordinating and aligning different tourism organizations uh, so that the industry could have a cohesive voice. If ever uh, gaining consumer confidence is is critical today, uh, you know, a trip that would normally be one day thing, you fly out, you conduct your business and you back home. Now with the, the quarantine laws and, and all the other hurdles that we have to go through, it could take you 10 days. Is there a clear communication strategy that would help us gain consumer confidence? You're absolutely right. I mean, as we have been saying, this is this is not just a health crisis, right? This is a, a crisis of trust. And that is one is, of, of the biggest things that we need to recover. But I think in order to recover that, we, we absolutely need those clear communications. We absolutely need um, to be clear about the fact that travel can be done safely. And that's exactly going back to, to the event, what we wanted to do. So we have been talking for many months about the importance of, of testing, because, of course, as we see um, the, the vaccination rollouts are more advanced in, in certain countries than others, and that's certainly going to help. Um, testing becomes a really important element to make sure that we travel safely. And and, and it's, 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 it's being very clear about what this processes are going to be. If a consumer is aware of what they're going to face, obviously we want less hassle in that sense. So we want to eliminate quarantines, which is another thing that we've been very vocal about because we don't think, and I think evidence shows that quarantines are not very helpful in terms of, of um, containing the spread of the virus, and yet they are hugely disruptive. So we absolutely need that unity we absolutely need that international coordination and 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 then that to be then conveyed into consumers so that's why we have been working so actively across many different governments and and we're very pleased to see some positive examples like what is coming out of the european commission recently with their certificate and and with their will to 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 reopen um europe um and, and international borders as soon as they can 
So one more question before I turn it over to uh, Sam. Uh, vaccine rollout in developing economies is, is going well. Uh, obviously, U.S. has gained a lot of ground. EU has been able to do a lot. But when you get to emerging economies, uh, vaccine availability is still a challenge. Is it going to become a bubble within the developing world that those are the only folks that can travel? Or how can the travel continue to be inclusive of everybody? We absolutely need to avoid that. So what we cannot allow is for this to create two tiers of citizens. And that's why from the beginning, we have been very clear about the sort of non-discriminatory nature of, of the vaccine um, rollout. And yes, while it will take a really long time, potentially a couple of years for the whole population to be vaccinated, um, the world needs to get back on track. And that's, it, that's why it's measures like testing, like the digital certificates that are going to be so critical to get us to do that, irrespective of whether people have been vaccinated or, or not. I mean, people, it's not just the country you're coming from or the region um, you're coming from, but it could also be age and it could also be certain health conditions that, that will not allow um, everyone to be vaccinated. And, and that's why as long as we can prove that we're obviously not carrying the virus um, through these different um, tools, I think um, that's what's going to get us moving. And we cannot wait for the whole population to, to be vaccinated. And we also cannot allow um, for, for this to be used as, as discrimination. Well, it, it is a very fine balance being a public health issue. How do you keep people safe, but yet not discriminate against certain economies or certain nations and open up borders safely so people can conduct their business? I'll be back with you in a moment. Let me turn it over to Sam Eric here. And, and uh, thanks for all your insight. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask you, Virginia, about the uh, United Nations. Uh, they created in 2016 the uh, sustainable development goals. Uh, I was wondering how you see the address. the The, the goal is to uh, to achieve them in by 2030. Uh, and the more I talk to a number of travelers who are in the millennial age, sustainability becomes a very uh, hot topic for them. And the reason why they travel somewhere. Uh, how do you address these uh, very important goals that uh, UN has created and in your lobbying efforts uh, around the world? So as I said, um, sustainability is certainly um, something that has been accelerated and, and, and something that, that we're, we're very pleased and, uh, to, to see how we're evolving. And actually, I mean, the climate crisis is certainly a, a crisis that needs to be, to be addressed. So um, from our perspective and from travel and tourism, I think there's been, um, for many years, there's been this perception about obviously our contribution to climate emissions and, and, and so many other things. And, and we've really been putting attention to this. And back in 2019, we launched an ambition for, for the sector to be climate neutral by, by 2050. And I think we're working towards that ambition. And, and the way we're doing that is, I mean, we have a number of, of members within WTTC that are very advanced within, within this, um, within their own sustainability goals. And of course, this includes not just climate, the environment, but also all the social aspects of sustainability that I'm sure Aradna will cover later, but all the things around diversity, inclusion, and our impact 
to communities. So it's a very broad aspect, but what we are doing is taking taking each area and, and learning from those that have been in this space and that have been doing the right things for a really long time, and then just trying to share with the 80% of our sector that is effectively um, made of SMEs. How can these um, smaller businesses get into this journey? How can we start making improvements that are meaningful, that are measurable, and that can be reported towards um, climate neutrality? Well, thank you very much, Virginia, and over to you, Abit. Virginia, one last question. Uh, you brought up a great point uh, relative to SMEs. A lot of these small companies really make a destination. It's the restaurants, it's the tour operators, it's all these small organizations that benefit from tourism. Unfortunately, with this crisis, some of them might not survive. Some of the larger organizations that have healthy balance sheets they might be able to weather this storm a bit better than uh, small organizations. Any thoughts as to what could be done to prop these smaller organizations up? Because they really make the destination what it is. You're absolutely right. And that's why for, I mean, through all this time, we have been talking about the importance of, of these um, of these companies that effectively make the 80% of our sector, or they are the backbone of, of, of the travel and tourism sector. So if we, if we think about all the BMBs, all the smaller companies, as, as, as we say, that, that's what's really um, having an impact and, and, and in particular communities. It's also the, the relevance that these players take of, because of, of, of the interconnected nature of our sector. The minute one of these small businesses goes literally out of business, the impact throughout the supply chain is quite significant. And so that's why we have been advocating for all the different um, things that we have been talking to governments about, um, the, the support that our sector needs, the, the not only from a financial perspective, but also in terms of its reopening and, and, and also the damaging effect that some of these travel bans make. Just to give you a quick example, um, when Canada um, blocked all their flights into Mexico, um, it was a few months ago, and we were talking to some to, to some to a community, actually, really small town near Puerto Vallarta, and, and, and these communities live off tourism. So and actually this these Canadian travelers had been going back to their second homes, so and the community had been living off the fact that that some of these people were still able to go there because again it's very remote they were not interacting with other people the minute that flight ban was put in place a whole community was put on pause and that has an impact in really the, the, the social um the social aspect uh, everything throughout poverty education and so many different um things that are interconnected to to, to tourism well, Virginia, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I know you are very pressed for time, but we really appreciate your insight. We'll have to have you back, but uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, I know you're not able to stay for the entire session, but we appreciate the time that you've given us. Have a wonderful day, and we'll look forward to having you back with us soon. Thank you so much. At this point, I would like to uh, bring Alex Dichter with McKenzie uh, to uh, have a few questions with uh, Alex. Alex, thanks for taking the time. Not at all a bit. Good to see you. 
Great, great being with you. Uh, talk a little bit about the traveler concerns, Alex. Uh, and how is it that destinations have responded to uh, uh, these concerns and attending to public health issues? I mean, look, I, I think at this point, uh, the traveler concerns are, are really somewhat binary. People want to feel safe, um, but at the same time, I don't think that there's any room for competition on safety. And so uh, they want to know that uh, obviously case counts and test positivity rates in the destination are uh, not out of the norm, that the pandemic is being handled well, that hotel rooms are clean, uh, that there's some degree of social distancing in place. Uh, and, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, in some cases, you see a cultural split among travelers, some who'd like to see masks on and, uh, and you know, outdoor dining only, and others want to see a very open economy and want to use tourism as a way to really celebrate uh, the fact that they're away and want to know that they can go to a restaurant and not wear a mask. I'm not going to comment on the efficacy of either of those positions, but, um, but there's a clear divide there. Uh, I think at this point, the, the most urgent thing that uh, travelers are looking for is certainty that they can get in. Uh, it's as simple as that, uh, and certainty that they can come back. And so, um, you know, certainly Virginia talked a lot about this, but I think the fact that borders remain closed or complicated uh, is probably the greatest traveler concern that we see today. Uh, fair enough. It, you know, the uncertainty throughout this pandemic has been a, a, a huge deterrent for travelers to go anywhere because you never knew whether you're going to be stuck there. As a matter of fact, as late as yesterday, I was uh, talking to somebody who has very frequently gone back and forth to Italy. Uh, and I was told that last year they went there for a month uh, and it turned out to be that they were stuck there for eight. They just could not get back. And with all the planning in the world, that is very disruptive. And, and um, I'm not sure if I would have been able to plan that way, though they were stuck at a beautiful destination. So that was the positive, except uh, uh, their, their business might have suffered as a result of that. Could you could you comment a little bit about the emerging recovery trends? What are you seeing? Talk a bit about the rate of recovery and, and what could be done to expedite that so that the travelers feel comfortable. Sure. I mean, look, uh, there's no question that as soon as people feel as though it's safe and as soon as there's a clear sense that borders are open uh, and destinations are open for business, um, tourism is coming back. We see green shoots in many parts of the world. If you look at China today, domestic travel in China is really at 2019 levels. Uh, the summer bookings for U.S. airlines uh, are looking much more like 2019 uh, than they looked like 2020. Um, I, I do think, however, uh, that the jury is still out on whether or not we're going to see more uh, relaxation uh, of uh, restrictions particularly when it comes to cross-border travel, and therefore whether we will see a quick recovery. And I think there's two frames on what's going on with the pandemic. One frame is very positive, and that's despite the fact that uh, vaccine rollout has uh, been delayed in many parts of the world. The fact is that the world has the production capacity to vaccinate 100% of the world's population by December. The U.S. has the capacity to vaccinate 100% of its adult population by June. Europe, which was arguably off to a slow start, would hit 50% by June. 
70% by September, with many countries reaching 100%. And of course, um, what has driven public policy response in this pandemic is not the fact that many people get a cough for a week. It's the fact that people are being hospitalized and, of course, dying. And so the at-risk populations, which have driven the vast majority of deaths and hospitalizations, uh, are nearing 100% uh, vaccination access in many parts of the world. Uh, and we're starting to see that in the data. Uh, and so there are multiple countries where if you looked at the ratio of new cases in one week and hospitalizations or deaths four to five weeks later, that ratio has has, has dropped by 80%. So we're seeing a real decouple. Gives policymakers the ability to open up open up borders and go back to some degree of normal. However, I think the negative frame uh, is what we see going on in India uh, and what we have seen in South Africa and Brazil and the fact that we are seeing new strains that break the rules a little bit, that are both more transmissible uh, and at least as lethal uh, and at least partially vaccine resistant. And I suspect what's happening is ministers of health are whispering in the ears of prime ministers and saying, look, we cannot rule out a completely vaccine resistant, highly virulent strain. And if that happened, we'd be back to zero. And so I think there is a a, a bit of a tug and pull between transportation ministers and ministers of tourism who say, look, we're, we're largely through this. And, you know, on the current facts, they're right. Uh, and those that are saying, look, it's not 100% over until it's over. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, um, we continue to see politics embedded in these decisions. And so if you look at the list of countries uh, that are open to other countries and you try to make sense of those li lists in the data that you see, it's very difficult. Uh, and so there are countries on red lists and banned lists in some places um, that have virtually no code. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of, uh, of optics. Uh, I live in the UK and, you know, the recent list of 14 green list countries came out. Um, you know, I think four of them, uh, I would require a research vessel to reach. Um, there's no scheduled uh, air service. Others, you'd have to go through a red list country to reach. And of course, that's not allowed. Uh, and there are at least three um, that aren't accepting travelers from the UK. And so, you know, it turns out to be a much smaller list than it appears. Um, but, you know, that's marketing for you. And uh, unfortunately, voters seem to still be buying that particular brand of marketing. <laughs> well, that is that is uh, fascinating what you talked about, that though the list, unless somebody had looked into it, they would think that things are opening up. But in reality, it is totally meaningless. You brought up China uh, and also uh, places like Australia and New Zealand. They've done a wonderful job of containing the spread, but it's in a, a virtual lockdown. So there is nobody that goes in or out or particularly in places where there is enough population base so that the domestic travel can propel the, the economy forward. They are starting to uh, make a go of it. But a lot of the other world relies very heavily on cross-border travel. You're being one. Uh, uh, it, it, that cross-border travel has been there for hundreds of years is it's not about to go away. When do you anticipate some of these restrictions being relaxed, yeah. particularly in light of possible other variants that might be brewing in the background? I mean, I, I think uh, there are a couple of scenarios. I think there's a world in which we see a reasonable re relaxation over the course of the summer. That will come with conditions, of course. Uh, and the next issue we're going to have to deal with is managing those conditions. And so many countries have said, 
that they intend to open up to vaccinated travelers uh, over the summer. Um, that's a lovely thing to say, and it's working on a small scale in places like Iceland, you know, for example. Um, but and and as uh, Virginia said, there are multiple private and public sector organizations, including the WTTC, that have sponsored very sophisticated applications that would upload uh, vaccination documentation and present, you know, a, a QR code, if you will, to a border official that would make for the combination of a high degree of vetting. Uh, and a very smooth process. Unfortunately, there's a real disconnect between the design of those systems and the reassuring words of governments and the documentation that is actually being handed out. And so for those who have been vaccinated in the US as I was, um, the vast majority of people are being given a three and a half by five inch index card in your name handwritten in ink, uh, in many cases without personal identifying information like a, a date of birth. And so I, I suspect the next issue we're going to deal with is that policy will get out in front of reality and we'll have to backtrack a little bit to find ways uh, to accommodate uh, documentation that probably doesn't meet the burden of proof that the ministers of health would like to see. Uh, and I suspect it will take us some time to work through that, uh, which means that I don't really expect a, a, a sort of full reopening with tailwinds uh, until you know more into the fall, at least across borders. Uh, and even in some parts of the world beyond, many of you will have seen that Qantas, uh, Qantas more Australia, which had prior announced that it was going to start international flying again in, I believe it was October, has pushed that, that date back to December, largely because it does not appear that the country is ready. Uh, and it's interesting that um, the countries that uh, had pursued a isolation strategy, you know, were wonderfully effective at containing the virus and have allowed their domestic economy and domestic tourism industries to return quite robustly. And there's a lot to applaud uh, behind those strategies. Um, it would have been lovely if at least one of them would have also been in front on the vaccination um, because you know, while there's a lot of focus on vetting the vaccination status of people who enter, I think what uh, most epidemiologists would say is probably equally, if not more important, uh, that you have high rates of vaccination internally before you open borders. Those are very, very good points. And I'll come back to you in a moment, Alex. Let me uh, turn it over to Sam Eric, uh, and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Yes. Uh, Alex, could you address now uh, or share with us your thoughts on the, the travel patterns? You mentioned uh, domestic travel is very strong in looking forward, looking in US and China. Any? How about globally? Where, where do you see, what are the, the patterns now in, in traveling? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the patterns we're having to look at through surveys and booking intent uh, and internet searches because there's such low levels of activity in much of the world. But I think it's clear that when we see uh, travel permitted again and easy, we will see a relatively robust uh, leisure recovery. Um, so one thing that none of us really expected from COVID is that despite what Virginia said about the impact on the tourism sector, Broadly, the impact on global GDP from COVID uh, is uh, about one third of what we saw over time from the global financial crisis. The stimulus uh, is nearly seven times. And so equity markets have done extraordinarily well. Real estate as an asset class has done quite well. And so people are coming out of this. Um, if you've kept your job, that's an important caveat. And while unemployment rates are high, the vast majority of people in the world have kept their jobs. Um, you are likely emerging uh, with higher savings rates 
and a higher sense of personal wealth than you had beginning. And more importantly, you have been reminded through months of lockdowns and, and fear for personal safety that your possessions uh, while you were locked in your home were of little comfort. The thing that you missed were your experiences. And I think we will see a, a return to what I believe is one of the most enduring consumer trends on the planet, and that is the shift uh, of people spending their disposable income you know, from stuff to experiences. There's a lot of psychographic research that says that things do not make people happy, experiences do. Uh, and so I think we'll see um, a fair amount of what the industry has started to refer to as revenge travel. Uh, we will see it in the places where it is allowed. Uh, and so it will start domestically. It will then move on to, you know, green list corridors and eventually we'll see it everywhere. Uh, how about the mode of travel? I remember in 2019 or was it 18 when in Sweden they talk about flygskam, which was the shame of shame of flying. And now when I look at what the situation is, people are now desperately booking their flights out to to uh, to Spain and, and Greece uh, for their winter holidays. And then another point is that uh, the movie that made the Oscars, you know, The Nomadland, suddenly there's a, a pickup where people want to take a holiday and drive across the country. I mean, the U.S. is a perfect uh, country for doing that. But do you see any, any shift in the, in the way people are traveling? Uh, and because maybe there is also about the, the safety, for the personal safety. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, uh, I think we will see a continued uh, focus on the importance for some segments of sustainability in their choices. Uh, and, you know, over time, I think you will see people start to ask themselves whether if they want to go to a beach, um, you know, a beach in Spain might be just as good as a beach in Thailand. Um, you know, if they live in Europe, um, the former, of course, having a smaller carbon footprint, at least as far as the transport is concerned. Um, and at the same time, uh, look, let's be practical people will increasingly choose green choices when they are reasonable alternatives. And so that means, you know, the train between Barcelona and Madrid, uh, instead of flying, that's three hours uh, or two and a half on the fastest trains. Um, not that much different to the downtown to downtown times. But I don't think people are going to be driving or taking the train with any regularity from Sweden to Spain. Uh, and unless global warming really kicks into gear, it's going to be a while before Sweden has the kind of beaches uh, and water temperatures that you see in Spain. Uh, and so at some point, uh, people have to fly. Uh, and as we've seen in the U.S., uh, and, and by the way, elsewhere, uh, I think people are increasingly ready to put their fears behind, particularly if they've been vaccinated uh, and to travel. Uh, what I have seen and I have been flying is uh, increasing compliance with mask mandates, Um, a reasonably impressive effort uh, on the part of the airline and the hotel industry and the airport industry to put in place uh, health and safety protocols. Some argue that these are cosmetic. Perhaps they are, uh, perhaps they aren't, but I think they do make people feel better. Uh, and, you know, in the meantime, you know, we continue to have relatively few documented cases of COVID transmission on uh, aircraft or in hotels, not zero, by the way. And so, you know, no question that going out of your home is more dangerous than staying in your home, but that's true with many things. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is, you know, in the, I'm, I'm really talking about the medium term, I think in the, you know, even long medium term to long term, we see a lot of evidence that in crises where people fear for their safety or security, and this would extend to 9-11, the Gulf Wars, the terrorist attacks in, in Paris, SARS uh, in Southeast Asia, um, when these things are over, people go back to their old behaviors. And uh, while, you know, we will see some 
embrace of the wide open spaces in the U.S. and places like that, uh, and and perhaps a bit more domestic tourism curiosity. Some of what we saw last summer was indeed the result of people not wanting to be around others uh, because they were afraid. And I think as we come through this, we'll see a rubber band effect where people will want to be around others uh, and around others a lot. So, um, you know, the curiosity will remain. There are a lot of wonderful things to see domestically uh, that I think have been under leveraged as tourism assets. But I don't expect that there'll be long term fundamental shifts in what people are looking for. Okay. Yeah, I think one thing is about the human nature. We tend to have very short memory span, and that uh, will, will may be that we are, uh, once this is behind and you get the comfort level and sense of security, then you life goes on as before. Not as before, but uh, at, uh, there's a renewed uh, excitement of uh, going to see new places, and also the destinations are getting better at promoting what they have have to offer. So it's a very positive thing. Well, thank you, Alex, and I'll hand over now to Abid. Thanks. Uh, 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 Alex, you talked about technology and, and somehow figuring it out, uh, uh, some of the things that whether you've been vaccinated or not without creating discrimination. Uh, vaccine passports, and maybe the hang-up is on the word passport, it has become a, a hugely controversial topic. Uh, your thoughts on on systems like that that can at least get regular travelers through the borders quicker, possibly with less uh, restrictions than the others? I mean, look, uh, I, I understand some of the resistance, and I certainly understand the resistance uh, to having governments manage programs like this. Um, at the same time, we have to recognize that governments have the right to decide what the criteria are for someone who wants to enter their country, um, particularly as a foreigner. Uh, and we've long been in a position of, of needing to prove multiple things. We may need to prove that we uh, have a sponsor on the other end, that we have a round-trip ticket. Certainly, we have to prove that we have a passport. Uh, and so vaccines and or COVID tests are just one more thing we need to prove. And I do think passport was a poor choice of words. I think what the industry was looking for was a solution that allowed uh, travelers to prove their eligibility to enter a country without having to queue up uh, in front of a border official to show someone a piece of paper. And the main reason for that is the system doesn't have the capacity to handle that. I think we've seen stories in parts of the world of six hour immigration queues you know, on peak days uh, as border officers have struggled to test or, or to, to vet PCR tests uh, and things like that. And of course the airline industry, um, when the planes get full again, is gonna have no interest or capacity to be able to vet those things on the departure end. And so we need some kind of electronic uh, simplified verification system. Um, the challenge, of course, is going to be that the people that were designing the vaccination programs and the data that was being collected at point of vaccination and, and the documentation that was being handed out were not thinking about, and nor should they necessarily have been, that this document might actually be needed to travel at some point. And so in most cases, not all, it's not machine readable and it, 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 it's missing personal identifying information. And so governments are gonna have to have a choice, which is either to take a bit of a macro view, just to look at a, at a point of origin and say, you know, 60 or 70% of people have been vaccinated here, perhaps rely on artificial intelligence through an electronic device to vet the likely efficacy of documentation. Um, but I suspect we're not gonna get to a, a place where we can, prove with 100% certainty that a vaccine document has not been forged. 
uh, and that needs to be okay at a certain point. Um, if it's not, we're going to end up keeping borders closed for a very long time. Well, also, no matter what system we put into place, whether it's technologically driven or manual like the card, uh, um, there, are, there are privacy issues that are kicking in. The PDPAs of the world that would prevent some of this information to be collected or transferred to a third party. And, and uh, I must confess, I don't envy the people that are thinking through how to overcome these issues while pe keeping people safe. Have you, have you um, seen any great strides in this area that, that one nation might have made over the other? Uh, no, I, I haven't. Um, I, I mean, I think that, that, that several nations, particularly those with national health care services, you know, have managed to create the fact that you have been or document the fact that you've been vaccinated and incorporate that in a relatively simple status report. Uh, that would not necessarily contain, uh, you know, any amounts of unusual personal information. Um, but I think it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, and I think that this is, you know, different than proving that you have a round-trip ticket. Uh, and it's different than proving that you're round -trip, you have a round-trip ticket, largely because it involves people's bodies. And, uh, and, of course, that's at the center of a lot of the privacy debate that we have right now around the world. Uh, and medical information has been at the top of list of concerns for a variety of reasons. And, you know, people have legitimate fears that this information could be used in all kinds of different ways to make insurance decisions or employment decisions uh, that would not be accept acceptable, um, you know, given the civil rights, rights laws that exist in, in many parts of the world. Um, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I really don't. Um, but I do think it's important that the ministries of health and the ministries of transportation and those who think about the privacy be working together for a solution. I fear that policy will get out in front of reality, and uh, it's very difficult to walk back from policy. You know, as a politician, when you go out and say we're going to do X, hard to come back a week later and say, well, we made a mistake. <laughs> you know, that wasn't possible, and so we're going to do a version of of X instead. Um, that's a very difficult thing to say, and so better to think it through, you know, from the beginning uh, and come out with something. That I, though in political arena, it's becoming easier and easier to negate yourself these days, which is very interesting. But one last question before we bring our next guest, Alex. Is this time and the pandemic, is it all about survival or is there a movement for transformation in our industry? You know, I'd say it's, it's broadly split. Um, you know, early on in the pandemic, we... Uh, talked about the process ahead of us in the context of a number of phases. And we published a few articles that had five phases and every one of them started with an R. And so it started with resilience and, you know, ended with reimagination. Uh, recovery was somewhere in the middle. Um, but the idea in a simplified version is that there is a period in any crisis where you are living day to day and you're managing the crisis. And there is a period uh, in which you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you start thinking about how to take advantage of or at least prosper in the new world that you're going to see in front of you. Uh, and I'd say in the travel industry, you're broadly split. Um, you see you know, a number of players that are very much thinking ahead and planning ahead. Uh, and thinking about how they can win, you know, in a world that will have many changes and others who are still li living in crisis. And by the way, I don't think that either one of those is necessarily right or wrong. It has a lot to do with your context. So. 
Well, thank you, Alex. Really appreciate it. Please stay with us. We'll have you back in a moment. But uh, I'd like to bring forward Radna. Uh, Radna, thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be here, Abid. Well, Radna, our industry is very heavily reliant on people, people that travel, people that serve them, people that work in this industry. It is, in my opinion, it, it, well, we know that it employs hundreds of millions of people, but the industry is all about people. You have done a lot of work around there, but before we get to that, any particular recovery trends that you are seeing in, in talking to your clients, any recovery trends, any success stories that you would like to share? So um, I don't know if it's a success story, but I think it's my irrational optimism um, and something that um, I feel enormously encouraged by at this point, which is um, to say, I think the future of travel and tourism compared to how we have known it is going to be far more interesting. And that is down to who I think would be traveling in the future. Uh, and I think it's important to mention that I genuinely believe in the next 10, 20 years, uh, the most important thing would be the coming of age of um, who we have historically called millennials, right? Because why do we say this? The average age of a millennial currently is about 28 and a half, 29. But let's fast forward 10, 15 years. So in 10, 15 years, the average millennial is going to be the single biggest earner in the family. The income will double. And that is going to lead to a 30 to 80 trillion consumption shift from the baby boomers and Gen X to the millennials. Now, this is the greatest transfer of wealth ever in history. And the fun thing is what millennials, and I think Sam Eric touched upon it when he said that there is a new focus of millennials on sustainability. And I think he couldn't be more right because what millennials want from travel and tourism is significantly different from what we have seen in the past. As an example, they want, they want electric vehicles, right? They don't want ice engines. They want to shop online and not go to malls. They want to rent and throw, not own as much. And Alex was talking about it as well. And they want to travel, but they want to travel not just to see, but to make meaning. Um, and what we are seeing that, and I think Virginia mentioned it, everything within the social impact space. So climate change, community, cultural sensitivity, authenticity, diversity and inclusion. So everything within the broad social impact space is extremely important to them. So pre-pandemic, there was a growing body of evidence which was showing an increased demand from travelers on all of these criteria. But now your next customer is going to demand it. It's non-negotiable. And I think as a sector, this is the good part and the biggest opportunity and something to be careful of because if we continue to do things the way we've always done in the past, we will miss out on this probably what, what I call is the biggest opportunity of our lifetime. But do you think our industry is ready for that wave of change? We are uh, 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 very resistant to these changes, quite candidly. We're very slow in adopting some of the things uh, that might benefit do you think we're ready for it? And if not, what can we do to get prepared? Because all the things that you talked about, uh, not only that they are the right things to do, but the consumer is going to demand it. It's, it's not an option. 
So are we ready? We are, I think, en route to being ready. Why? Because, um, you know, there is a paradigm shift in travel and tourism as we know it, and it's increasingly becoming about experiences and authenticity, simply driven by the demand for places and people where your offering has to respond to what the nature is and what the nature's rhythm is. So people are actively going to seek out places and destinations which are really responding to that rhythm of nature instead of merely capitalizing on its assets and leveraging the natural assets. Um, that's the first part. And I think including in uh, the pandemic, one of the things that has come to the fore, Abid, is um, trust is the new currency, right? So if your new customer is more environmentally and socially aware, and you're in the business of tourism, quite frankly, the expectation at a base level is that you're going to be trustworthy and transparent, and you're going to bring a certain level of cultural credibility and have a certain purpose to what you do, and also form uh, or forge deeper connections. So I think We've seen a lot of that with a lot of um, uh, the industry and the businesses reacting to it, at least the visionary ones, because they have quite literally doubled down on the social impact of businesses as a way to build competitive advantage. I mean, that's by many different ways, but I'm talking generating employment for locals, empowering more women, fostering diversity and inclusion and closing the skills gap. So we've seen it. Are we there fully? Not yet, but we will be. Well, I think that's a great segue. One of the things that uh, is coming up as as uh, a wall that we're about to hit is labor shortages. Uh, this industry, unfortunately, has never, uh, uh, particularly with the younger audience, it has never been the preferred industry because it's as a perception of a bit of a grind uh, that doesn't pay well. Lots and lots and lots of people lost their jobs. They were furloughed. They might have gone on to other things. The work-life balance, which uh, uh, appears to be a myth in our industry, but we continue to strive for that. Talk a little bit about the labor pool. What is there? What can we count on? And what are some of the challenges coming forth? <laughs> this is interesting. You, you, you remember when the first lockdowns were put in place, every CEO in the world was on record saying how everyone's number one priority is staff well-being and retention. But clearly, someone didn't get that memo, right? Because <laughs> we are now gearing up to rebound and reopen the sector. And guess what? We are all scrambling for workers. Uh, you know this more than I do. Job openings in US is at a record high, I think 8.2 million and the number of vacancies exceed hires by more than 2 million, which is the largest gap on record. Now, in the UK, come May 17th, which is next Monday, indoor dining opens up. And there is data which is suggesting that job postings in April saw a 400% increase compared to the same time last year, obviously, because we were on lockdown. But here comes the but There are no takers. And it seems like no one wants to come back to work, right? And the interesting thing is that there are a lot of factors at play here. Now, of course, we've had the pandemic um, to blame, uh, quite obviously, because we've also had the uncertainty of stop, start, stop, start um, through, the, through the entire last year. But 
the fact remains that many employees have quite simply left the industry. They've gone back to their home country. Now, in the UK, there is a double whammy because post-Brexit, all migrant workers, EU and non-EU, now need to have a proof of uh, or a job which is suitable and one which is paying £26,500 per year before they can come and work in the UK. Now, that's difficult for a lot of hospitality businesses, right? Now, especially because 25% of UK's hospitality staff was EU workers. And if you talk about subsectors in specific regions, like in London, 70% of the staff came from EU. So that's now not going to happen. So pre-pandemic, there were 3.2 million people who were employed in the sector. I'm talking across the hospitality, bars, restaurants, hotels. And now we have one one-tenth who are simply not part of that talent pool. Now, add to the fact that we are an industry where we're working very closely with people. So people have health concerns because you don't want to work in an environment where um, you want to catch the virus, no matter which way. Some others are still at home with their kids at home. So you can't then get back to work full time as you did before. And then finally, colleges and universities, right? They have been doing remote learning, which means you also don't have access to that talent pool, which you historically had. And of course, like you said, a whole lot of others have gone on to change the sector completely. They're probably working with Amazon, Deliveroo, or you know what? They're probably trading on Robinhood and making a lot more money. And that's something that we need to be cognizant about because quite frankly, and I'm jumping continents here, but in US, as you know, um, the unemployment insurance means you end up making more money by not working than working. So I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but $2,000 per person, plus you have some emergency funding versus $13 per hour. I mean, that doesn't add up, does it? So uh, I think we need, and I think there was, I think two weeks ago, New York Times had this fantastic article, which was talking about a 10% increase in jobless benefits is corresponding to a 3% decline in the number of people who are applying to those jobs. And this is not just a UK, US, Australia problem. This is happening um, everywhere. What would be interesting is to see how, um, how people will react once the furlough schemes stop. Well, look, I, I, I know that has become a, a really a big, big topic of discussion, even in Congress, the, the unemployment benefits. But to be honest, the flip side of it is that uh, if we really think these jobs are that important, you mean to to say that the government can pay more for people to sit at home, that people can make working really hard in this industry? That doesn't speak very highly of our industry either. But we'll leave that we'll leave that aside because that's a, a very very controversial topic. Uh, let me let me turn it over to Sam Eric here, uh, Radna, and I'll be right back with you, Sam. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to continue this discussion about attracting uh, talent. And I have had the opportunity to, to speak to it uh, uh, over, over Zoom calls with a number of uh, university students who are in the hospitality school or hotel school. And the question is, it always comes up to them that, uh, you know, what should I do? Should I stay in the industry or should I not? And of course, I, I give them the uh, if you have the passion, stay with the industry. But more importantly, maybe my question to you is that how would we be able to attract this leadership talent 
that they would really stay in, the, come to the hotel industry. So, because I understand from the the graduation percentage of how many people stay in the industry after they graduate from hotel school is quite low. So, any thoughts on that? So, uh, I think uh, Abid has very nicely passed on the tough question to you, Samarik. Uh, and this is the part where I get into trouble because I think it's absolutely right as an industry, we're doing a shoddy job of establishing what I call is an aspirational caution for the sector, right? I mean, think about it. We are still showing images of hotels and waiters at the table asking the next generation to join our industry. I mean, good luck with that if your search is going to be someone uh, or search is going to be for someone who has a burning ambition to be waiting staff. I mean, we, for starters, need to accept that the young will join travel and tourism because they believe in its transformative potential and it infuses them with a sense of pride. They care, I think, less about the job and the industry, but more about the ideology and the values. And that's the mistake that we're doing, right? We're trying to advertise for a job and we're expecting people to want to build a career around it. And I think that is a dichotomy that we need to solve. Um, and again, I'm getting into controversial territory, but I think there is a lot that needs to be done, including or starting with changing the world of education, because, you know, of course we need to in include the, expand the talent pool, we need to get new people in, but can we just start by changing um, the world of education? Because think about it, the future is uncertain, and 65% of the jobs that people or the next generation will end up doing does not exist. We don't know what that is going to be. But what we know is that there will be a lot of exponential technology, disruptive changes. And this is a two-way problem, exactly what you were saying, Samarik, because graduates from the traditional top schools, be it a Cornell or a Nicola Telia de Lausanne, they have less and less interest in what we call traditional hospitality operations. Um, Instead, the number is 65% who go on to join consulting and banking and real estate um, and asset management. So you have graduates from EHL go going and joining Alex at McKinsey or JLL as against joining a traditional hotel firm. Now, on the flip side, you also know from research that career in tourism is not something which resonates well with what I call as a generic graduate. So you get stuck from both sides, right? And you then don't have access to that talent pool. We, we just need to be very creative in terms of how we profile it. And I think we need to change the education system as well and make it more real world, which it's not. Yeah, and I also think you need to look at the uh, new positions for the hotels that uh, the traditional positions are, maybe, are not be interested. Maybe uh, the... Uh, TikTok officer or, or IT officer or some jobs that are relating to uh, kind of a technology, what they are, uh, how they live at the moment. And if it resonates to their lifestyle, then maybe the job opportunity or the career opportunity in the hotel organization might be something that they might be interested in. And that's totally, and don't get me wrong, I have no problem with uh, us hoteliers studying hospitality. I mean, we've all done that, right? Specialist subjects in education exist for a very good reason. But for the future, I think we need to reorganize the same knowledge in a way that it's solving a problem because university has departments. The real world has problems. So we can't be studying subjects to solve the problems that need to be looked at. Climate change is a problem. Population is a problem. Sustainability is a problem. And all of that needs a solution now. So if we reorient it, I think we will um, suddenly be more attractive to a new pool of talent. Yes. Well, thank you very much, and uh, over to you, Abid. 
Radna, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted uh, female gender. It's a proven fact. Uh, it's come up over and over and over again that that, that has uh, uh, been very loud. Talk a little bit about uh, um, gender disparity in our industry, even pre-pandemic levels, and what would that mean as the recovery begins? So I think this is quite um, tragic because <laughs> the original assumption was that COVID would be a lot like the previous pandemics in that it would be what we call the great leveler because all of us are suffering in some way or the other, right? But in fact, what this pandemic has exposed is that if all kinds of systemic inequalities, especially when it comes to gender, I think has been exacerbated with this COVID pandemic. Now, UN had produced a study which said that COVID is going to push, um, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was close to 96 million people towards poverty. Now, guess what? Close to 50 million out of those are women. Now, female job loss rates due to COVID are about 1.8 times higher um, globally. Now, women's jobs are 20% more at risk than uh, men. Now, it's not, um, it, it's not surprising. Why? Because it's women who are disproportionately represented in sectors which have been most affected by COVID, right? Hospitality, retail, entertainment, um, food services. So it is, it's struck from both sides. Now, um, if anything, I think specific to the pandemic, it's more important than ever that we use the current learning, not just to dismantle the stereotypes, but I think reorient the organizational culture and make even a stronger commitment and a conscious effort to make up for this lost time of you know 18 months. Uh, well said, uh, very well said. One last question, Aradna, before we bring Alex back into the conversation. Uh, 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 talk about some, some best practices that you can share around the globe in talent development that might also address the gender equality issue so that uh, we have a bigger pool of people that we're developing, attracting and retaining in this industry. Any thoughts on that? So um, I, I can think of a couple of examples, but um, um, and I'm probably biased because I chair the advisory board of um, Red Sea Project in Saudi Arabia. But as you know, Saudi Arabia is a destination which has become uh, the fastest growing destination in the last two years since the economy opened up, right? Um, now, um, what are they doing well with regards to talent and development? First of all, they decided quite early on that they need to have local talent. So the whole concept of relying on cheap labor from developing nations is not a sustainable model. And quite frankly, it's also not a model because, uh, you know, it, it doesn't spring with the value proposition that they're offering, which is authenticity. So one of the things they did really well is ensure. So the Red Sea Project is a great example where 50% of all employees are locals. And I think that's, I think that's a great step forward because in a sense, you're also trying to kind of show to your people that you need the locals to make a success story of the project. Now, um, the second thing that they have done rather successfully is 
show that a career in tourism is not just about working at hotels in the kingdom. It could be perfectly about that, but also, as an example, by joining the Red Sea Project, they could be saving the turtles or, um, I don't know, spearheading vertical farming or um, helping promote health tech and a new way of wellness. So I think these are good examples of profiling the story so it lands into the vision of what's possible. It's it's creative thinking, right? I mean, I have tons of examples. Um, um, I can go on till uh, you have time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, Sam, if it's okay, let's bring uh, Alex back into the conversation We uh, at the tail end of it. Alex, a question for you. What roles can the different industry stakeholders play to expedite the recovery and gain consumer confidence? And when I talk about different stakeholders, it could be the owners of some of the assets, the destinations, the governments. A any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I think the, the most important thing is to speak with a common voice. Uh, and by the way, to their credit, I think that that's increasingly happening. Um, you know, I, I'd say my casual observation was that in the early months of the pandemic, we saw a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, organizational competition, if you will, uh, for, you know, who was going to lead the charge on recovery. And um, these are all well-meaning organizations that represent uh, bodies of owners or uh, brands or airlines, you know, you name it. Uh, and that led to, um, you know, a certain amount of uh, separation of position uh, on things like, you know, should we be blocking middle seats or not on airplanes? And what's the right cleaning standard for a hotel? And uh, how should we think about the relative merits of quarantine versus testing uh, as, as an entry barrier? Uh, and I think in a world where politicians are hearing every single day from their ministers of health, and by the way, are dealing with a very real and current human tragedy, uh, the industry needs a consistent and solid voice. And by the way, uh, a reasonable one. Uh, and so, you know, early on, there were some parts of the travel industry arguing that travel was safe. And I, I think that was an unreasonable position. I think taking the position now more where we are that travel no less than going to the grocery store for the people choose. That's a more reasonable. Um, but but I think that uh, that working together uh, is the, the most important thing we can do. Um, you know, what's the right uh, electronic application? Let's settle on one, not five, uh, and support it. Uh, and the more we do that, the, the greater the chances are that we get governments around the world uh, here. Uh, and adopt positions that work both for the management of the human crisis, but also for the recovery of this important industry. Well said. Uh, Arana, would you like to add anything to that before I ask you my next question? No, go for it. Uh, you, talked, you talked about innovation. Uh, uh, quite candidly, every organization in the world talks about innovation and everybody thinks that the most innovative organization ever existed. Our industry typically has lagged. That's my opinion. I don't have data that would support that, but I think it lags. Our innovation in airlines was that the seats were brought closer together so we could put more people on the planes or hotel industry did things differently. Now, I, I take that with a grain of salt. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. But it, what innovation has to transpire in our industry for it to be transformative with 
uh, as we come out of this pandemic? So a lot of it is happening. And I, I don't know, probably we haven't seen innovation in the big um, way that you're describing it, Abid, but I see innovation in the small, medium enterprises and businesses, which are mom and pop stores on a daily basis. And that's been enormously encouraging through the entire crisis. Let me give you an example. Um, this was just in the papers a couple of days ago, and I thought it was brilliant. Um, you know, vaccination uptake is a problem in states now because the vast majority of the population has uh, been vaccinated and there's 20% of population in US which will never take a vaccination no matter what. But uh, so the vaccination rates have slowed down. And what does this bar uh, pub in Buffalo, New York do? They have decided to open up a vaccination camp adjacent to the pub. You get a free drink if you vaccinate yourself and you get a card to come back and get your second vaccine when you've had that. 200 people vaccinated in a day. That's not bad. And to me, that is innovation just as much as a big transformational change happening. Absolutely. Another example, Romania, right? This is um, the, the land of Dracula. Now, again, to encourage people to vaccinate, what the Department of Tourism in Transylvania is doing is setting up a vaccination marathon camp next to the Dracula's castle. So you get a vaccine and you get a free tour to, I don't know, go visit the torture chamber maybe. But again, that's innovation for me. So you, you, you do have it, but maybe not the big changes. Fabulous. As Sam, I know there has been a lot of activity online. Uh, let me turn it over to you for a bit. I've got one last uh, couple of questions because we approach in the tail end of our session. Well, uh, Abed, we had some uh, a question that would probably take an entire episode to talk about where uh, question one, what is the global tourism outlook towards India? But I think we have to leave that uh, for another time. Uh, Smita Parmar uh, says that trust is the new currency. That is indeed what everyone is looking at as travelers, that empathy is important. So those are a comment from Smita. So thank you very much for that very nice comment. So, but Abit, any question you still have? <clears throat> Can I just say, say something to Smita? I think trust is the new currency and purpose is the new product. That works. Fabulous, fabulous. A, a question for both of you. If you were to define, uh, let's take uh, uh, three priorities for 2021 related to travel and tourism. And Alex, if you wouldn't mind uh, going first. I, <clears throat> I assume you mean a bit uh, priorities for the industry. Um, so I'll That's go ahead correct. and answer it that way. Uh, I mean, look, I think one uh, is a practical priority and that's to be ready for a two speed Recovery, uh, and that if things open up and we start to see recovery, it's going to happen very, very. And we are going to shift from the problem of not having enough demand to the problem of not having enough supply. Uh, and the problem that uh, Ardana talked about, lack of workers, is a critical issue. And uh, it, there is, it is mathematically certain that when demand comes back, it will come back faster than we can bring capacity back online, and that will mean long lines in airports long queues to check in at hotels, queues to re re retrieve one's valet vehicle, delayed room service. And, and this precisely at the moment when we need people to love the tourism industry, we will likely be letting them down. Uh, and at the same time, be ready for additional lockdowns, additional border closures, often at the last minute, <clears throat> with all of the financial pressure that comes with that. Uh, that's really, really hard to do, but I think it's critical from a survival standpoint. 
I think the second is it is time to start thinking about uh, reinvention uh, and reimagination. Um, many of the, the things that we did during COVID were accelerations of trends that had been in place for some time. And I think it's it's not the time to stop that momentum. And so the move towards digitization, um, which of course, uh, you know, has worked not because people didn't want to be in contact with others, but it's worked because it was the right answer. You know, checking in at a hotel costs a hotel money. And it's something that I don't want to do. Nobody does. Nobody wants to wait in a queue. You know, what's luxury? being asked whether or not you've had a good visit to the airport or being able to go to the hotel or being able to go directly to your room, use your mobile phone uh, to open the door and walk into the peace and quiet of your room, clearly the latter. Uh, and uh, we need to continue that. And then last but not least, and I've had this conversation with many in the industry, in the early days of uh, the pandemic, many players in the industry surprised themselves with the speed at which they were able to plan and execute big changes. And so whether that was moving to, you know, completely uh, contactless service models, um, you know, closing half of a hotel, reinventing the food and beverage concept, um, reinventing the passenger flow at an airport. Uh, and they uh, all sort of had chuckled and said, you know, these things used to take us months. And uh, I think what they've tapped into is the essence of agile which is when you've got a clear goal and you give a set of people the autonomy to go after it without being burdened by typical corporate processes, you do much more and you do it more quickly. And I think an interesting priority for the recovery uh, is to think about how we institutionalize that, so we can come back as an industry that is not only more resilient, um, but also much faster. Fabulous. Uh, uh, Radna, your thoughts, please, on priorities. I think uh, Alex summarized it really well because my first one would have been don't try and get to where you were because that's going to completely defeat the purpose. Can we just talk about, you know, can we forget 2019 and talk about 2021, 22 and beyond and see how we can build back better, right? Um, so that's the first one. The second one, I think this is already happening and that is all about sustainability where I think so far, public disclosure about everything on sustainability has resulted in an idea that it's all about cost, burden, and sacrifice. If the maths is correct, as has been proved by the pandemic, we will see very soon that it's actually all about profits, jobs, and competitive advantage. So I think there will be a complete paradigm shift where we realize that sustainability, it's not anti-market. It's Pro logic. Um, that's the second one. And the third one, I think, speaking about climate change, if this has been the focus over the last century or many years, I think the rest of the century is going to be so much more about equality in every way. Um, it's also climate change, but health and well being and equality in every way. So, diversity, inclusion, all of this is going to become uh, front center and I don't know. Well, look, uh, thank you very much. And Sam Eric knows that I could probably keep you here for hours. I, I have lots and lots of questions, but thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I know Virginia couldn't stay with us, Virginia Messina with the WTTC, Radna Kuala with Aptamine Partners, and Alex Dichter with McKenzie & Company. It was an incredible conversation. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for joining us.